0: Welcome to the final Conversations with Coleman episode of the year. Before we get to the episode, I just want to thank everyone for all the incredible support this year. It's been a great year for the podcast, and I have all of you, especially those of you who support the show, to thank for that. I run ads on the public feed of this podcast, but if you want to get the ad-free version plus extra content, you can get it for a few dollars a month at colemanhughes.org. And if you can't afford a few dollars a month, just email me and we'll give it to you for free. I never want money to be the reason you don't get my content. And that email is admin at thisis42thenumber.com. Another quick announcement. I finally started a substack. I'll be writing a few times a month for Barry Weiss's new outlet, The Free Press, where I'm a contributing writer. And those pieces will also be featured on my substack, which I'm calling Coleman's Corner. I took a break from writing op-eds because I've been working on a book, which is now pretty much done so I have time to write shorter pieces again. So if you enjoy my content, please do subscribe to my Substack, which you can do for free if you want, or you can chip in a few dollars a month. Okay, for this episode, my producer has stitched together some of the best moments from my podcast over the last year. We've got excerpts from my conversation with Dr. Zubin Damania about COVID, Matt Taibbi, who's recently been releasing the Twitter files, Zach Kriegman, who was fired from Reuters, for leveling true and reasonable critiques of Black Lives Matter. Katie Herzog on rapid onset gender dysphoria. Brianna Joy Gray on the weaponization of identity politics by liberals. Jonathan Haidt on the evolution of Facebook. Ricky Schlott on the camp, uh, the climate of college campuses. Renee DeResta on propaganda and Ashley Rinsberg on the historical errors made by the New York Times. So I hope you all enjoy this year end highlight reel. And of course, Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. And happy new year. Uh, this is something I've never talked about, like my relationship to medicine or or the world of medicine. Um, you know, my background on it that's informed some of my perspectives. Uh, which is that really, I I only encountered the medicine through my mom getting sick as a kid and and eventually passing away when I was eighteen, mm. and. Uh, she was also uh, heavily into alternative medicine and heavily critical of um, of the mainstream. And she had a formal certificate from from a school in Ayurvedic medicine, an ancient Indian medicine, and you know attempted to cure her cancer via traditional Indian medicine as opposed to mainstream medicine. And I think you know I, it's impossible to run history a, a different way, but there is a there's a big part of me that blames her her death, at least um how how early she died on um what I would consider her indoctrination into various kinds of alternative medicines and her involvement with particular doctors that um, really are where I would just say the norm is, is malpractice, right? Their practice is malpractice. Um, and I think that that formed my background as a a kind of deep, um, a deep well of resentment against alternative medicine and against people that distrust the system, um, flawed as it is. Uh, you know, at, at the same time, I, pride myself on being an open-minded person and someone that doesn't let my personal history or personal resentments, um, color my worldview to such an extent that, uh, I end up doubling down on, on dogmas that, that, that I really shouldn't. And, and so I think I've become more open-minded to, to people that critique mainstream medicine. You know, I've read very interesting stuff by Ross, da- Ross Douthat recently, one of my favorite writers at the New York Times, who just got, he had Lyme disease uh, something like five years ago. And as a result of pain, just tried everything in the book, quack cures on, on you know, things that, that would be qualified as misinformation. And some of them ended up working for him. And it's changed his point of view to something more like, listen, when you're in pain, you do what works. And I think there's a lot of um, a lot of wisdom in that as well. So that's kind of my that was sort of my background coming into COVID. And um, you know, so I guess before we talk about that, I sort of want to talk about your big picture views on mainstream medicine versus alternative medicine. Um, wh- what you think the incentives incentives of big pharma um, are? are, are sort of causing because, you know, on one end you have people that don't trust anything that comes out of big pharma because they're making money off it. And people that see conspiracies anywhere someone is profiting. And on the other hand, you might, you might have someone like, like me a few years ago, maybe resentfully and dogmatically dismissing any critique of big pharma as, uh, or, or of the mainstream as dangerous. So what can you sort of say about that terrain? Man,
1: there's actually so much to unpack when everything you said, you know, I mean, uh, first of all, I'm sorry about your mom. I mean, that is traumatic and you're absolutely within normal human parameters to feel the way you did. What's remarkable about what you just did though, is you put your bias out there. You actually named it, you made it explicit instead of operating unconsciously from it, which many of us do. Right. So, so that's really awesome. And so let's use this kind of. To kind of frame this discussion of mainstream versus alternative. I think we have this kind of logical fallacy of the false dichotomy here that these things are mutually exclusive and that medicine is either a reductionist kind of materialist um, receptor binding agent, like a pharmaceutical, you know, mechanistic left brain parts create the whole kind of way of looking at things, which is more the classic Western medicine training that we get versus the. Extreme other view, which is no, it's it's all holistic and interdependent and a little bit magical. And, you know, nature has been doing this thing forever and so on and so forth. So these kind of dipoles seem mutually exclusive. But just like we have, and I'm a big fan of Ian McGillchrist's work on left and right hemisphere of our brain and how they see the world completely differently. And often they'll inhibit each other through the corpus callosum, the fibers that connect the two hemispheres. But in reality, increasingly, we're living in a, in a left hemisphere dominant bureaucratic parts rather than a whole world, whereas really it's a balance. So the mainstream medical model, which I think many are now starting to recognize if they hadn't already, is deeply flawed, really says, listen, we can reduce a human organism to one quadrant, which is an it. It is like the everything we can measure and quantify in the body, in the organs, and the tissues, in the blood. So that means a lot of testing. It means a lot of treatment with pharmaceuticals. It means a lot of procedures, mechanical procedures on the body in the form of surgeries, et cetera. And to the degree that it works, it works very well, specifically if you have a one horse problem, like a trauma or a cancer that has one receptor that's abnormal or one defect that you can target with a particular chemotherapeutic agent. There's certain leukemias like that, et cetera. Where I think it falls short is the fact that every single disease that we suffer from is what my friend, Dr. Rachel Zofnitz calls biopsychosocial. So there's a biological it component. There's a psychological I interior consciousness component. In other words, this, this what we call the mind-body connection, it's really a one thing. And that does influence our health directly in measurable ways in the it sphere in terms of cortisol and dopamine and oxytocin, but in ways that are more subjective and qualitative, but actually have direct effects on our, our well being, health, pain perception, suffering, et cetera. And then, so bio, psycho, then social, the kind of we component is actually also massive. So, what are social norms around, say, You mentioned Lyme disease with uh, the New York Times writer, this idea that there is a, that's a biopsychosocial disease. There's the biological component of the infection with the bacterium that causes that. There's the psychological components that are sometimes triggered by the biological components, sometimes independent. And then there's a social thing like, is chronic Lyme disease a thing? How do you manage it? You go online to a forum and other people are sharing stories and it becomes this inner penetrating web of reality. That's how humans are. That's how reality is. It's multi-quadrant. And so what's happened in both poles is they try to reduce all the quadrants to one quadrant instead of seeing it more holistically. So I see it more now as a yes and. And when you're looking at like, say pharmaceutical companies, I think there's very good criticism that of course they're incentivized to reduce it to an it and a receptor and a vaccine and a Paxilvid or whatever it is but on the other side you have the alternative side which is no well we we claim to be holistic and integral and all that but we throw away for the most part hundreds of years of scientific progress and go back to herbs and spices and magical energy fields right now the truth is the truth is anyone who's done a meditation retreat which i have or have have had these experiences with you know the so-called alternative medicine understand that there is a powerful connection between mind-body experience, biopsychosocial. And pain in itself is very modulated by the mind. And so these experiences, let's say Reiki or one of these like energy healing practices. Like you could look at from a scientific it's perspective and say, there's nothing there. Like this is faith healing, like what is this? But then people who've gone through it will say, no, I actually can experience energy fields in the body. So from an internal eye standpoint, it's real, which means there's a modulation of pain or suffering which means there's a modulation of your cortisol and various hormones, which affect the it domain, which, which means it's all this web of connection. So what's happened to me is I was like you, uh, meaning I'm, I'm st- I still have that big component of real bias against that space because when it goes cuckoo, it is dangerous. People die, you know, and, you know, using your mom as an example, Steve jobs is another example. You know, he, he, he really neglected this very treatable type of pancreatic cancer and, but then he would show up at Stanford because we were there at the time and kick whoever was in the CT scanner off, use their jobs, reality distortion field and get his scan. And, you know, he'd be riddled with tumor and then he'd go back to whatever he was doing. And it's more complicated than that. Right. And I don't profess to know his case that deeply, but I would say that that's an example of when one extreme pulls you. So then you have conspiracies and this anti-pharma thing. And then you have the reductionist world. If no, everything's a pill and a procedure. So we really need to build the corpus callosum between left and right brain in medicine and and beyond. And I think that it just, it means making the implicit explicit, finding a synthesis position and starting to explore it.
0: So how did your adventures in Russia, Mongolia, and, and elsewhere inform your personality or your perspectives as a writer and journalist today?
2: Well, I think... I think one of the things when you spend a lot of time outside the United States, you realize how insular um, reporters are in America. They have very little sense of how the rest of the world works. You see things in a more jaded way. Maybe when you return home, Um, you know, in Russia, the corruption was so transparent. You could just so easily see which gangster was supporting which politician and, you know. Each one owned his or her, I mean, his own newspaper. So you would wake up in the morning and say, well, this this mob interest wants me to think this and this mob interest wants me to think that. And then when you come home to the United States, you realize it's not so different. It's just a little bit more. It looks a little more more superficially respectable. So I, I think I just learned a lot about how the world, you know, going to different parts of the world and. Um, You know, seeing how politics operates in different places uh, and not thinking America was so very special or different than other places. It's just the scale here is much bigger uh, than it is anywhere else.
0: I just want to uh, I want you to describe to me sort of in detail what what actually happened from the point where first gave your colleagues feedback they didn't like to you getting fired for giving that feedback. What is that story?
3: You know, I've been noticing this, um, maybe I should just do like a, a quick summary of, of what I, what, sort of what my post was about. Um, because basically what happened is I posted a summary of the academic literature about Black Lives Matter, which I'd been following because as a data scientist, I was sort of curious about the, the, what was actually coming out of you know, universities uh, in terms of this question. Um, and internally, I had been noticing as this sort of like new racial ideology had spread throughout the company. Um, and, uh, and it was sort of growing more and more concerned because I knew that the this, this sort of research had been, um, had been showing that Black Lives Matter was core claim that police are biased towards shooting black people, just didn't stand up to scrutiny. It's just untrue, but not only that, that claim had been powering this decrease in policing and um, increase in violent crime, including all these murders. And I knew that as you know, someone with white skin saying anything about this at Thomson Reuters would be putting my career in jeopardy, but I felt like Reuters had a public trust to be reporting honestly. So what I did was I compiled a summary of the academic literature and I posted it to our internal collaboration platform called The Hub. And, you know, just as I expected, that immediately made me the target of this barrage of intensely angry and, um, and ultimately highly racialized attacks. And then the company's response to those attacks and this sort of this brouhaha was to censor everything I had written and basically shut down any kind of critical examination about the facts of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And that was even more concerning to me because now not only were we reporting these falsehoods that were getting people killed, but the company was literally saying, and we're never going to talk about it internally, making it impossible to ever rectify, making it impossible to ever have for for our organization to sort of grapple with the facts and correct our reporting. So then I sent an email to senior leadership in the company because so far i had been dealing with HR and I was hoping, well, maybe senior leadership doesn't know about this. Uh, whole situation. They've got their, they're busy with other things. So maybe if I make them aware of this, they'll write the shit. So I sent an email to senior leadership and other colleagues, sort of describing how this racialized bullying had made it impossible for us to have a conversation about these facts underlying our news stories uh, and how our news reporting was uh, diverging from those facts. And then they fired me for that.
4: But there's this other thing going on, often called rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is much more socially influenced. And a lot of people want to deny that this exists, but you can just look at the numbers and you can look at the population of kids who are now showing up to gender clinics. It used to be uh, there were more boys, natal boys, natal males, than girls would go to these clinics in the past decade or so as these numbers have spiked of uh, patients appearing at these clinics. The vast majority of them are natal females, you know, and so we're supposed to ignore that forever it is known known that girls, especially pubescent girls, are intensely subject to social pressure. It is very important for for girls to to fit in. You know, when I was in high school, every other girl was anorexic, bulimic, or a cutter. That was the thing. The ones that weren't were goth, or maybe maybe all of the above. But now it's become this, we've attached these identity labels to this thing, and once something becomes an identity, you can't question it. It becomes sacrosanct. Uh, so it it makes the, the conversation intensely difficult to have because of the backlash and, the, of course, the, uh, the allegations, if you question this stuff, that you are literally killing trans people, which I get quite often. Um... Yeah, I think, there's, I think the vibe shift is coming, but uh, over the last few years, we've seen just really some really bad ideas spread, I think, especially among uh, adolescents and children, the people who care for them.
0: I actually know very little about your background and how you came to be the person you are, care about the issues you do. So if you, if you can, just for a little bit, give me some details of your biography. How did you become who, who you are?
5: How did I become? Well, I don't know. Uh, that's a big question. I was born <laughs> in Washington, D.C. Um, my parents went to Howard, went to school here. My oh,
0: My Howard... dad went to Howard, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah.
5: How old about is your dad?
0: So my dad was born in 64. He would okay. have been in
5: Howard in, in the mid 80s. Okay, they're a little younger than my parents. My yeah. father was born in 58. Uh But uh, we didn't live here long, and neither of my parents were from here. Uh, We moved to North Carolina. When I was two, my mom was doing her PhD program there in psychology. And my father was a research chemist. Um, They very quickly realized that the rat race was not going to be one that they could win. My mom looked around in her department and saw the salaries that people were earning as academics and realized that it wasn't going to be sustainable for her. My brother was getting... um, you know, kind of marginalized in the public school system we were in, and they couldn't afford a private school or any kind of alternatives. So my mom, being a a rather resourceful woman, uh, went to an international school fair, job fair in Miami, and realized that she could get a job working as a teacher in the international school circuit. My father became certified as a science teacher. She was a school psychologist. And so we moved abroad for eight years, uh, Saudi Arabia first for two years, and Kenya for six we're wow. coming back in to the States in 2001 to New York, where I graduated from high school and international school there, and off to college and law school. Um, I went to law school largely because I, like a lot of people who graduate from college, wasn't entirely sure what they wanted to do, but mm. was told, oh, you're good at talking and writing, so that'll be good. But the promise of litigation that you're sold on shows like Suits has no bearing on reality. You're nowhere near a courtroom, there's no kind of rhetorical skills that get. Mm -hmm. Um, exploited or or used in any useful way. And of course, I also graduated uh, in the middle of the recession, right at the beginning of the recession in 2007. And the legal market was very much not what it used to be by the time I graduated from law school. So, you know, I felt listless, like many kind of elder millennials like myself who got stuck uh, between economic crises, as it were. Mm. And when Bernie came along He activated, I think a lot of the ideals that I was raised with. My mother came from a rather kind of unorthodox, somewhat progressive household. My grandfather was in the nation of Islam. And she, she jokes that when she went to Howard, she had already read all of the books on her reading list because her father had made her read all of those things as a middle school student. Mm -hmm. Um, and She was always rather vocal, although not dogmatic, about expressing her frustrations with the limitations of the Democratic Party um, and the corporatized nature nature of our two-party system. And so I think when someone like Bernie Sanders came along, my mother was a longtime fan. I wasn't really politically involved or aware to be truthful. But for me, like for many people, he activated a sense that, oh, things could be better. And here's a blueprint for all of the ways in which our system could be working more efficiently if it weren't so Captured by corporate entities, and if we actually had candidates that weren't taking all of this money from the very interest groups that are misaligned with the interests of the people that they're supposed to be advocating for. So it was a natural fit. Um, And I became very frustrated in the context of 2016 about the absence of coverage um, of Bernie, generally speaking, but also this line that said Black people in particular weren't interested in Bernie. Black people and women weren't interested in Bernie. And that's when I started. Uh, my own podcast, Someone's Wrong on the Internet, and then started writing, in fact, to bring attention to that podcast, and it was the journalism career that took off. And as you pointed out, one of my first early viral articles was about um, identity politics being weaponized by liberals in order to cover for the extent to which they're not actually delivering for the working people that they say they're delivering for, for, from. They, trans, they, they transform that group, which is largely diverse, right? into sing they erase the kind of class dynamics of that group cast them entirely in kind of diversity terms uh, appeal to and support kind of superficial diversity measures that ignore the ways that their marginalized ethnic religious or gender status manifest in material terms and therefore is able to do the sidestep where they can pretend to be serving the interest of those groups while actually delivering nothing in a way that would hurt their own personal bottom line. So then we were off to the races.
6: I'm sure that Mark Zuckerberg didn't intend to bring about what he's brought about. Um, um, And many of these people were techno-utopians. They really thought if we just, you know, information wants to be free put people together, good things will happen. Uh, But had there been some social conservatives in the mix? This is the interesting thing to me. If you read a lot of the writing of the techno-utopians, they're almost all uh, uh, libertarian or progressive. They share what, uh, what Thomas Sowell calls the, um, the unconstrained vision of human nature. Um, this is the John Lennon vision. Imagine there's no countries, imagine no gods, no possess- just all the people living life in peace. It'll be amazing. Knock down all the walls, just put people together. It'll be great. Um, that's the unconstrained vision that guided the French revolutionaries, the Russian revolutionaries, the, um, and then the opposite vision. Sowell says is the constrained vision of human nature, which is more Sigmund Freud. Um, it's more uh, you know Edmund Burke. It's just the idea that actually uh, we do need constraints. We need structure and constraints. And if we don't have them, what comes out is our sexual, aggressive nature. So it's actually civilization. It doesn't repress us and make us bad. It actually Gives us structure and constrains us, and actually makes us good. Makes us do our duty. Makes us uh, be law abiding, good to people. Um, so the internet. I don't think there was any social conservative involved anywhere in the creation of the internet. It was a dream of progressives and libertarians. God bless them. You know, many of my friends are progressives and libertarians. Um, and you know what I've learned is it's really helpful to listen to all three of those groups: progressives, libertarians, and social conservatives. But if you take any one of them out of the mix. But the other two would build is not really fit for human habitation. And that's the internet that we have.
0: Before the podcast started, we were talking about the fact that you read Coddling of the American Mind. Was it in 2015 when you had just enrolled?
7: It was in 2018. It was my the fall of my freshman year at NYU. And I had just gotten to campus. And in my orientation, they they said, here's your NYU ID card. On the back, here's the the infirmary, the emergency hotline, and here's the bias report hotline. And all of a sudden, speakers are getting shouted down on campus. I started hiding my Thomas Sowell books in my dresser just in (laughs) case anyone saw them. And so I I was in the city alone. I was very concerned by what I was seeing socially, and I felt very isolated. And then I found this book, and I was like, wow, I'm recognizing all the symptoms here. And here are two experts that are really finding the root causes. And I was just so blown away and so comforted by by this explanation. And unfortunately, as they're saying, I've seen everything get worse and worse and worse, but um, they were obviously just so ahead of the curve in recognizing these trends.
0: So when I was at Columbia, uh, my friend had a picture of Reagan on his wall. And if he went out on a date and the date went well and uh, a girl wanted to come back, he would turn the picture over.
8: <laughs>
0: and then if she wanted to go on a second date, he would consider turning it up. And by a third date, he would say, okay, there's actually something here. Let's see how it goes.
6: Love <laughs> okay. you No, know, that's actually not a bad strategy for employment either.
8: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, the word propaganda, I think, uh, some people... Have a sense that propaganda means it's false, or means that it's a nefarious, and they think of they think of Nazis basically when they hear the word pro- propaganda. Um, but the the way you're using it is is more in the original sense of the word, where it's not necessary. It doesn't necessarily have a negative connotation, right?
9: Right. There's an interesting history there, and I don't want to like bore you with a history lesson, but um... Propaganda means to propagate. It's a, it's a particular construction of, um, of the Latin verb. And Pope Gregory used it um, following the, uh, you know, during, during the Reformation, right? So there was this sense that the Protestants were winning the messaging war, right? And this is, again, during the age of pamphlets. And the printing press is expanding people's access to information. And the Pope says um, he forms a committee, the Sacred Committee for the Propagation of the Faith. And propagare, it means to propagate. So it is actually just a, it is a description of a verb, right? It's, it's now kind of thought of as like the substance of the content, um, but it really meant this exhortation, you must spread the one true faith. And there was like a command that went along with it. It was a very forceful term. And it was saying, you are going to go out and, and, and re, you know, bring, the, the, bring the lost sheep back to the fold. Um, over time, particularly as wars begin to happen and in the age of mass media, where people who control the, uh, the broadcast channels um, can, prop, you know, can propagate certain information to the public, what you start to see is this idea of, um, as you noted, it wasn't originally a pejorative um, propaganda as information with an agenda. But there's this interesting period in the 1920s where there is a sincere belief among uh, particular, you know, the kind of governing class that it is actually the responsibility of the government to synthesize information for people because they can't possibly synthesize it on their own. There's just too much stuff for them to pay attention to. And so this is an interesting theory, right? This idea that in order to have uh, democratic cohesion and an informed public, the government has to do something to message to the public. Over time, of course, we start to see the blatant manipulation of that trust. You know, we see the Vietnam War, we see the Gulf War, we see instances in which the government lies to the people. And then you have the kind of Chomsky era um, definition of propaganda as this top-down construct where media and government kind of collude to put forth false messages or misleading messages um, to an unwitting public. And that's how this term gradually evolves from being something that, you know, this this exhortation, you must propagate this message to a very particular top-down construct. I think actually in some ways that old definition is really relevant today because we're all sitting here trying to propagate messages. And as we look at social media in particular, where you have information cascades and things hopping from one, one network to another, people serving as the conduits, um, it really is back to this idea of propagation. Sorry, my cat is old and uh, <laughs> not the hey, most uh, <laughs> dexterous at this point.
0: The first time the tail entered the frame, it just looked like you had a tail. I'm I'm not going to lie, but then now we see the whole cat. I
9: swear there's a cat, yeah.
10: (laughs) The other reason, of course, is that the New York Times doesn't talk about these things. When it came to the Pulitzer Prize that Walter Durante was absurdly given for his denial of the Ukraine famine, the Times was being pressured by the Ukrainian-American community Around two thousand and three to give the, to give it back, to rescind it, to say this was not won legitimately, and we do not deserve it um, it's not part of our tally of Pulitzers, and they hired a consultant who was a, a historian to assess the situation, you know it's like this big mystery, what he would recommend, and lo and behold, he's like, "Yeah, you should give it back and they said no they, they there was the publisher then, who's the father of the publisher today, wrote a letter to the board saying that to return that prize would be an act that would too closely resemble Soviet airbrushing of history. And you're just like, wait, what? It was Durante who airbrushed history in your newspaper. And again, at your behest, or the behest of, in this case, his grandfather, the, that publisher's grandfather. And uh, he's claiming that to, re- to address it, to correct the record was the act of airbrushing. And that kind of moral jujitsu is something they're really good at. They're really good at, you know, writing this like really cool looking spread in in 1978 or whatever it was about why they didn't cover the Holocaust at at the New York Times, why in six years they printed six front page stories um, and then do the nice little kind of you know retrospective one time so they can point at it but not really grapple with the fact that the america's most important newspaper buried all but covered up the greatest genocide of the 20th century the most awful genocide of the 20th century they they would not come back to that in a manner that is even partially proportionate to what they're doing with the 1619 project in the scope. If you look at the amount of media, the amount of coverage they give to the project, the different formats of podcast, the deals with Oprah, um, you name it. And meanwhile, the Holocaust and the New York Times' role in covering it up at the same time that they had a Nazi as their bureau chief in Berlin gets one story written by a former editor in the mid 1970s or something, and they'll just leave it at that. So that's partly why. They, they continue to cover these things up and they do quite a good job of it because it's an ecosystem
2: mm.
10: and they are, they are one of the most important organisms in that ecosystem and nobody wants to go knocking on that door.
0: As a Darwinian, you're, you, it, it would make sense or, or one would believe that Consciousness must have some survival value. Um, you know, but it, but it's, it's certainly hard to see what it would be. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I'm influenced by the philosopher Colin McGinn on this point, who essentially makes the point that just like certain animals don't grasp the concept of reflection because it's just beyond their ken. So when they see their reflection in a mirror, they just can't and are never going to understand that that's them. Consciousness is something like that to humans. like it's, it's just beyond our ken so that we're probably not even asking the right questions. And even the smartest among us actually aren't capable because we're not built to understand what's true at bottom there. Is that yes, a thesis cl- you're familiar with? I am. Um, I, I mean, Colin McGinn is,
8: I suppose, one extreme of those who feel that uh, the problem is just simply too difficult and we might as well simply give up. Mm. It's a bit defeatist. Um, I mean, if people always have that kind of defeatist attitude. They've never solved any problems. But admittedly, it is an extremely difficult problem, so I do sympathize with it. As an evolutionist, I agree that uh, we, were certainly never designed to understand, not just consciousness, but um, modern physics. Uh, And yet we do. But I would take a kind of Colin McGinn line when it comes to the possibility that there may be things in physics that we were never designed to understand. It may be that we've already reached the limit, quantum theory and, and relativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, entanglement things like that are al- already pushing up against the limit of what the human brain can understand um, I mean I think already quantum theory we don't understand we just know that it produces predictions which are accurate to a right. formidable number of decimal places and I think the same may be of true of consciousness that, that we simply are not
0: built to, to understand it so totally different question looking back on your life, what piece of advice would you give to your 35 year old self? So you're, you're, you know, the, the selfish gene is coming out tomorrow. Yeah. You can tell that version of Richard Dawkins. One thing. What would it be? Don't waste so much time as
8: doing computer programming. I wasted an enormous amount of my life because I love it. And Mm. I became addicted to computer programming and, uh, it was it it consumed not just a lot of my time but a lot of my intellect as well and um but the fact is that it's a, it's a thing that other people do much better and so i would have done better to have done more biology
0: interesting so you you regret spending too much time doing computer programming because it's a kind of hobby rather than a yeah true, i mean
8: yeah. regret's a strong word because it mm. it was enormous fun and mm. and i think it did Help me to think about certain things. For example, it helped me to think about language. Um, I mean, I, I think I understand Chomsky better because I was a computer programmer, if, put, if I could put it that way.
0: If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.